Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Welcome to our most recent podcast. I welcome you to join, uh, visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org to see a list of the other excellent podcasts and to see a variety of other resources we have available, including a free email newsletter. Um, and the blog, and of course, the podcast that I just mentioned. I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, Dr. Brian Wansink. Uh, Dr. Wansink is professor at Cornell University, where he's the director of the Food and Brand Lab. Um, he's been well known in, in marketing and psychology circles for many years for his work on how the food environment affects our eating practices. Um, he has been a professor at, the, at uh, Dartmouth College at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton Business School, University of Illinois, and more recently at Cornell University. Uh, in, addition, in addition to his uh, impressive research record and the fact that he's had such an impact on the way the nation thinks about food, in particular through a book that he's published that has achieved great notoriety called Mindless Eating, uh, Professor Wansink was appointed about a year and a half ago by the White House to be the executive director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. So, Brian, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank right. you very nice much. Nice to have you here. Boy, there's so much work you've done. It would take hours <laughs> and hours to, to, to go through it. But the basic theme is that the, the food environment has a remarkable impact on the way we eat. And I know you talk about certain myths that people have or <laughs> assumptions people make about their own eating that turn out not to be true. And I'd, I'd appreciate if you could tell us, uh, uh, maybe give us one example of such a myth and how you've gone about testing out how people actually respond in real-world settings to things. And then we'll talk about the implications as we go along. <laughs> well, one myth ends up being the, the myth that most people know when they're through eating. They know when they're full. Now, we had done this, a study a while back where we took 150 people from France, from Paris, France, and asked them, how do you know when you're through eating dinner? And the number one answer was, I know I'm through eating dinner when I'm no longer hungry. Second answer was, I know I'm through eating dinner when the food no longer tastes good. Now, these are both internal cues they're using to tell them that, okay, dinner time's over. <laughs> We did the same thing with 150 Chicagoans, asking the exact same question three months later. But what they did was instead of giving internal cues, referring to internal cues as to why they stopped eating, they would say, I know I'm through eating when my plate is empty. Second answer was, I know I'm through eating dinner when everybody else is through eating dinner. The third was, I know I'm through eating dinner when the TV show I'm watching is over. <laughs> now, in all three of those cases, those are external cues that people are looking at to tell them to stop eating. Well, the problem is that our life is filled with cues that all tell us to eat more, whether it be the size of a plate, whether it be the lighting in the room, whether it be what our friend's doing next to us, whether it be the sign that's behind us, whether it be how great the food tastes. And well, if we can, we, can we, we can get into some of those studies in a minute, which I'd love to hear yeah, about, because sure. they're so interesting. <clears throat> but let me ask a question. Um, how do you? Th why do you think France and the U.S. are? S why, why are people in the country so alarmingly different at the the cues they use for deciding when a meal is over? Is this just cultural values of food? Has it been shaped by, you know, the, the marketing or other factors like that? Why do you think it's so different? Well, I think the two basic things that are going on: it's routine and it's um, 
their personal environment. And the answer to the personal environment is probably a little bit different than one might expect. But first of all, it's, it's routine. We find that any culture where there's a very routinized way to eat, for instance, you get up in the morning, you have bread and cheese, and that's what you have every breakfast. Or here in the United States, if a person were to get up and eat, eat oatmeal every day, they have one less meal that, for things to go awry. Because they're, they're in a routine, and as long as they're in a routine, they're not going to be influenced as much by the outside factors. The second thing is when I talk about their immediate environment, if you end up looking at a lot of these European countries, you know, you, you can't go to a big box store and bring home <coughs> huge amounts of food because you're carrying it on the metro or your car's not big enough or you've got to walk a ways. And it puts in a natural limitation as to how much stuff you can bring in. And that's further constrained by the fact that most European homes that I've been into have really pretty small refrigerators. And they certainly don't have a second and third one like a lot of American homes. They have less cupboard space. And there just isn't a place to store it unless you want to, you know, <laughs> have it be um, your dining room table be, you know, a storage facility for this stuff. <laughs> so I apologize for interrupting because you're about to start talking about some of your research, but I was interested in that question. So let's hear. You, you've done a lot of research to, to address that myth that people have that I stop eating when I'm full. Uh, so could you give us some examples? Well, one, one example that we ended up doing is that um, a lot of people do believe that you know, I know when I'm, th- uh, you know, I know when I'm full, but but they don't. I think we, over and over again, we've been saying that show that people end up eating with their eyes and not with their stomach. So, uh, we actually set up a, a study where we design these refillable soup bowls, and these are soup bowls that have a hole drilled in the bottom of the soup bowl, holes drilled through tables, and holes drilled up through really big hot cauldrons of soup, and by attaching food grade tubing from the bottom of the soup bowl to the bottom's cauldron, we can end up bringing people in and they can eat what they think is a normal soup dinner, except that um, unless they eat six quarts of soup, they will never see the bottom of that bowl. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and, they don't, and they don't notice that the bowl's you know, gradually refilling. Yeah, what's crazy, I mean, we, we stop them after about 15 minutes. And we've done this maybe 160 times and there's only two people ever discovered anything was going on. But what happens, is that the typical person will <clears throat> eat about 73% more soup. 73%, yeah. not 7%, not 3%, no. but 73%. Not 7 or 3%, 73% more soup. But if you ask them if they're any more full than the, the, their companion eating next to them, they'll say, no, I mean, how could I be full? I still have half a bowl of soup left. And that's what we're benchmarking on is, is eating with our eyes and not our stomach. Now, do you, if you did that study in France, do you think you'd find the same thing? Yeah. A lot of the, anything that throws off the cues that are the natural sort of governors in these other countries will see something similar. Um, we found something similar in both France and in um, Taiwan in doing some of these. But it, it, we have a real difficult time with breakfast and lunches in those places because they end up being very scripted. And to move outside that script is, is difficult for them. Um, so people perceive that they have a strong connection with their own physiology, that, that they somehow <laughs> can sense internally when they're full. Yeah. But somebody could eat 73% more and then report feeling just as full as somebody that ate a whole lot less. Yeah, if some of these people were eating a quart of soup, 32 ounces of soup, and you're saying, are you full? They go, no, how can I be full? I still have half a bowl left. <laughs> and that's well, a remarkable point. Um, yeah, we, we did something really interesting. This was with uh, with. Sanjay Gupta down at CNN one time, we um, did this uh, 
we call it the, the, the chicken wing study. And we actually recreated a, a study that I had in, 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 in published in the psych journal. And we brought people in, two groups of people, <clears throat> and we either we gave them all the chicken wings they could eat. We either bust their chicken wings or we didn't bust them. So, you know, as soon as people would finish their chicken wings, we'd, you know, take the plates of the bony remains away and give them more chicken wings. With the other group, we just let the wings sort of like pile up in the middle of the table, the bones, and then refill their plates. And what we found is that if we ended up bussing the, the bones, people ended up eating, it's about, um, on average, they ended up eating about um, six full three-part wings compared to four full wings. And that's a difference of about 250 calories. Mainly because they couldn't tell what they'd eaten. But the, the big cool thing here is that after the meal was over and they were leaving, in, in an unrelated event, they believed, somebody gave them the opportunity to, to take a, a 400-calorie chocolate chip cookie. Now, if they had seen how much they'd eaten, um, about 25% of them took the cookie and 75% said, no way, I, you know, I, I know how much I ate. The other group... Almost everybody took the cookie. Even though they had eaten 250 calories more per person, they still ended up taking a 400-calorie cookie because, hey, I mean, all the evidence of how much they eaten was gone. So the, the, I guess one of the challenges here is that these are very strong, robust findings, and you reported them in study after study. But in some ways, you, you have a hard time, I'm suspecting, getting people to believe it because it's contrary to what they think about themselves. You know, this couldn't be true of me. I, of course, I follow my own biology when I'm eating and stuff, but people don't. Yeah, well, people want to think they're way too smart to be fooled by a cue around them, like the, the size of a plate or the, uh, or the visibility of food. So we had done a series of studies where we actually showed that, that um, well, people are serving themselves um, well, it's between 22 and 28% more if you increase the size of their plate. And some people say, well, you, okay, well, as long as it's, you educate people, they'll know it and they won't do it. So what we ended up doing is, in one particular case, I took a, a group of uh, smart graduate students, and for 90 minutes, we lectured them on how the size of a plate ends up being this peripheral cue of what, what's a normal amount to serve yourself and, um, and that you'll end up serving yourself a lot more in this. You know, I lecture about this, we did demonstrations, I showed videos, everything. And six weeks later when we invite these people into uh, an unrelated study, which they thought was just a Super Bowl st study, we end up showing that they still ended up serving and eating 53% more, even though they had been educated in a way that it, it was just unrealistically comprehensive. And, but if you said afterwards, hey, did you end up eating a lot more because the size of the bowl, they'd go, no, I mean, how, how would I get influenced by a bowl or plate? No, I'm too smart to be influenced by that. And that's why these cues have so much power over us. Because we're not aware. Yeah, and when we were so unwilling. Automatic. But even if when we make people aware, people are unwilling to acknowledge that they were fooled by the size of a plate, that... You know, the shape of a glass. Yeah, tell us about it, because I, 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 have, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have my own favorites among your studies. Um, but one of them is the, the work you've done on glasses and things. So, and, and then the other is on containers that people serve themselves from. So oh, yeah, tell, yeah, us, yeah. tell us about the glasses work, if you would. Well, <clears throat> what's interesting, when people end up estimating the shape of things, they almost always 
um, are more biased by the elongation of an, um, of an object than they are the width. And one of the things that we thought we'd do is give people, um, bartenders, glasses, short, wide tumblers or tall, skinny highball glasses, both which held about 10 and a half ounces. And we asked them to pour how much, how much liquor they'd pour if they're going to pour a whiskey on the rocks or a um, gin and tonics and things like this. And one of the things we found is that these bartenders, even though they were professional bartenders with an average of over five years of experience apiece, if they poured into a short white glass, they poured 28 to 32% more than if they poured in a tumbler of the same volume. Because what goes on here is that when you're pouring liquid, you look at the height as it goes up and what you, do, you don't compensate for the width as much. And so as a result, because they're staring at the, the height, they uh, under account for it. Now, the crazy thing about this, it was, I, I was living in Philadelphia at the time, so we did this with you know, about 84 Philadelphia bartenders, that even when we went back uh, a couple weeks later and said, you know, you end up over pouring, uh, you know, 28 to 32% more. They don't believe it. You say, well, well, try it again. Even when you instruct them, even when you tell them they're biased, they'll still end up the next time being biased again. That's remarkable. Uh, guys, it's just crazy. It, <laughs> that, tell me about, uh, if you would, the container work you've done, like people taking spaghetti out of containers. Yeah, it's yeah. very interesting. Well, if you think of what's the right amount to serve yourself, um, if you're having pasta, if you're having something like that, well, you don't know. I mean, they, they have serving sizes on the side of packages, but, you know, we just serve ourselves the amount that we want to eat. One thing we want to look at is how does the package size that you're serving yourself from, how does it bias how much you end up serving? And we, we did this across a bunch of studies, but I'll give you one idea <clears throat> that we, um, we brought in um, a bunch of couples to make dinner for, for each other. And some couples we ended up giving them, um, <clears throat> I think we gave them two pounds of meat, a pound of spaghetti, and um, uh, it might have been a half gallon of pasta sauce, something like that. The other random group of couples had double that amount. They had bigger jars, they had bigger boxes of spaghetti, they had bigger packages of meat. And what we found is that even though it was way more than they could make for two people, the, the second group ended up uh, making and eating, again, it was about 30% more. And for some people, it was, it was tremendous amounts more, simply because the size of a package suggests cues to mind the amount that's the most appropriate, typical, normal, and reasonable amount to eat. And it just almost hardwires how much you serve yourself. And what we found in one of our studies is that, or through a series of studies rather, is that if you serve yourself, the, the amount you serve yourself, you'll eat on average 92% of what you serve yourself. So you might think you're gonna stop and you're full, <laughs> but that. most people don't, yeah. <laughs> You've also done what I thought was a very clever study, looking at how cookbooks have changed over times. <laughs> Describe that if you yeah, will. Yeah, that is. Well, oftentimes, um, you know, when we look at how how we've started eating more and more calories, there's often an emphasis on the external environment, whether it be maybe school lunches or maybe it might be um, quick serve restaurants or, or that. And one thing I was interested in is what, what are we doing at home that may not really be right? Um, has our behavior changed 
over the years. Well, clearly we buy more probably processed food. We might even get more carryout. But when we make our own recipes, does anything change? We thought, well, one, one idea to get at this, because you, you know, you, we can't go in a time machine back to like 1937 and compare things. But what we can do is we can look at how cookbooks have changed in terms of the calorie levels and the serving sizes. And <laughs> what we did is we took the book, The Joy of Cooking, which a lot of us have in our home. And it was first published in 1937 and this most recently published in 19, or 2006, about eight editions. And what we did is we, in all those eight editions, we looked at what recipes, um, we looked at the constant number of recipes that, that <clears throat> I mean, where the names haven't changed over, over 75 years. And we did an analysis about how many calories and the serving size. And one of the things we found is that of the recipes in 2006 that, are, that were also in 1937, every <laughs> recipe but one has increased in the calories per serving. Every recipe but one has increased. And on average, they increased about 63%, 63%. per serving. That, so the, a typical um, serving of, of, of uh, beef stew in 1937, if it was if it was 100 calories, it'd be 163 calories today. But now the crazy thing about this is that about two thirds of that increase is due to kind of a change in the recipe. So maybe adding more fat or more sugar or a change of a sauce or the addition maybe of uh, uh, nuts or you know raisins or something to it um, or more meat. Um, but then about a third of it is due to Changes in serving size. So there's a double whammy. People are are being served more because the recipe's are larger, but what's in the food also (laughs) packs more of a punch because of its calorie density. Yeah, yeah. Things like sugar and fat added. Yeah, yeah. That's really remarkable. Uh, Can you give us an example of another myth that people have that might might fool them into eating more than they might otherwise? (laughs) Well, the, the, the big myth is is this whole idea that hey. You know, clearly somebody who is who is um, intelligent and informed won't be tricked by these cues around them. Because we've shown over and over that that just that trips up everybody. Simply changing the size of a plate, people end up eating dramatically more. And that's sort of the, that would be the, the uber myth that, hey, education is going to be the solution. Because no, it seems that you could educate somebody, you could educate a bartender, and then the next week he's back to doing what he was doing anyway. And so that's, that's a huge myth. Another myth that, that is, is, I think, pretty powerful is the myth that we know what we like. And uh, <laughs> that the French have this expression that there's no accounting for taste. Um, but I think there's tremendous accounting for taste. Our, our perception of taste is tremendously biased. I mean, you know this one... Um, when you're, you're out with a friend and they have an appetizer and they go, gee, this appetizer is really great. Well, all of a sudden, with that evaluation, your entire brain is oriented toward looking at confirmatory reasons why that was a great entre- uh, appetizer. So when you try it, you know, you never say, no, you're high. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you almost always say, that was really good. And we've done all these studies where simply changing the name of foods. Um, changing the name of something from seafood filet to succulent Italian seafood filet made people love it. So the same food exactly. being served to people just with a different name. And <laughs> right. you, had, you had a chocolate cake example of that, too. 
<laughs> we did this with we did this in in restaurants. And we had this uh, chocolate cake too, and we we in one case we just called it chocolate cake. In the other case we called it Belgian Black Forest double chocolate cake. And people would eat it and they go, "Oh man, that that is just that's just exactly how it tastes," you know. And, and it doesn't even matter that the Black Forest isn't in Belgium. You know, people end up thinking that it's going to be great, and, and and their taste buds obediently step in line. I mean, the, the powerful thing about this is that if you are a terrible cook, <clears throat> there's great news you can use because it, rather than spending the last five minutes before a dinner party slaving away in the sauce, you're a whole lot better off creatively thinking about how you're going to describe these dishes to people. <laughs> and people will really like them and eat more. Oh, it is. Yeah. They, call they, it something. They, they like it and they think, they think the meal's more special, everything. Yeah. And you've done, uh, you've manipulated the names of wines, too. What did you find <laughs> with that? <laughs> well, we wanted to, to see just how far this, this, this halo or the shadow associated with, with labels extends. And so one thing we ended up doing is we took... Um, a, a number of um, cartons of this wine. It's, a, it's called Charles Shaw wine. It's, it's, a, it's an inexpensive wine from California. It's good. It's good for the money, but it's, it's cost $2. In fact, they call, actually call it two-buck chuck. And what we, <laughs> what we did was we soaked off all the labels and then replaced the labels with a fictional wine label that said it was either from California, a place really known for wines, or we said it was from North Dakota, a place not known for wines. And in our research restaurant, which is called Spice Box, we ended up serving this as a free, as a complimentary drink um, for a prefix dinner, French dinner. And what we found is that if people thought they were drinking California wine, they not only liked the wine more, but they liked the meal more, they ate more of the meal, they stayed longer, and they made reservations to come back sooner. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, if people thought they were drinking the North Dakota wine, it wasn't quite so magical. They, uh, <laughs> they didn't like the wine as much. They didn't like the meal as much. They finished quicker. And when we asked them, hey, do you want to make reservations come back? They'd go, ah, you know, I'm, I'm really, really busy for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, every one of these things is, is making a big difference, not a trivial two or three percent difference, but 30 percent, 50 percent, 70 percent difference in what people eat. And you, t you take that into account and multiply it by the number of such triggers out there mm. in the environment. I mean, what the, the environment starts to look like a complete minefield. I mean, do you think that would be an adequate and accurate description of it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We, we, we did this, we published this paper a while back, and actually I talk about this in, mindless, in, in the book Mindless Eating also, but we, we did this paper where we estimated the number, the average number of, of food-related decisions that a person makes in a day is, is uh, it ranges from 200 to 300, but for everybody, it's at least 200 decisions. Because it's not just, you know, are you going to have, you know, <clears throat> bacon or eggs for breakfast? It's, um, you know, if you have cereals, how much cereals? Do you have a second bowl? Do you put sugar on it? When you stop putting milk on it, how much sugar do you pour onto it? And these things go continuously throughout the day. Um, you know, right now you might say, geez, you know, I'm kind of I'm hungry. I'd really like to get something to eat. No, no, I'll, I'll wait till lunch. Hey, right there is a food decision. And because these, there's these 200 decisions, um, some of them we make 
in a smart way, but a lot of others we really make mindlessly. We let the influence, the environment influence us or move us in one direction or another. And the more we set our personal environment up to handicap us or booby trap us, the more it's just almost impossible to fight against it just through willpower. So from what you just said and, and comments you made earlier, I think I can anticipate your answer to this question, but let me toss you the pitch anyway. <clears throat> Is the answer to this then just educating people about all these sort of cues and having them triumph over the these environmental triggers to eating? You know, <clears throat> there there is some education that would work, but but in general, we are just way too busy. We have too many hundred things we're thinking about every day to remind ourselves, oh, big plate, must not serve too much in that big plate. It's, it's much, I, I think the key to mindless eating is not necessarily mindful eating because that's just too laborious for most of us. I mean, who wants to walk through life thinking, <laughs> you know, deliberately thinking um, every time they take a bite full. Instead, I think that the solution of mindless eating is to rearrange our environment so that we can mindlessly eat without overeating. Um, hey, if plate size causes you to, if a large plate causes you to serve and eat too much, well, don't have large plates. You know, it's sort of like the old, you know, it hurts when I do this, well, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, even we've done all this sort of stuff with stockpiling cupboards, and we find that where you place things in cupboards have a, uh, have a remarkable impact on your likelihood of taking it out and eating it, whether it be as a snack or in, out of a refrigerator. So a good key is, well, don't have the tempting, unhealthy stuff at eye level. Put something that's a little healthier, and you'll take that with higher frequency. Now, obviously, it's in, in the interest of the people who sell food to sell as much of it as possible. Um, wouldn't that be a barrier to making the kind of changes you're talking about? You know, I think a lot of food companies... One thing they really want to do, they want to maximize the amount of money they can make. And if you told them, hey, you know, um, you can make a lot more money if you sell something that has a higher profit margin, you know, they'd jump on that bandwagon immediately too. So even like with broccoli or something, if, if we figured out some way to make like a pre-seasoned broccoli or something, we found out some way that the profit margin for pre-seasoned broccoli would be twice as high as for potato chips, and there's demand for it. Holy cow. <laughs> We'd find companies renaming themselves to include broccoli in the name. Can't you just call it Belgian Black Forest <laughs> Broccoli? Italian Broccoli? I like that. Well, I mean, back in the, back in the mid-'90s, we had done this research with package size where we showed that the larger the package, the more, the more people take, took. But we also ended up doing the studies that showed that, conversely, if you ended up splitting a package into, into smaller sub-packs, we, we call them mini-sized packs, that for about 70% of the population would lead them to eat less. And so <clears throat> I was so struck by this. I thought it was so cool that back in 1996, um, you know, I, I called up a whole bunch of these companies and said, I got something I want to show you. And so I had this research presentation. I drove... Um, at that time, I was living in Philadelphia, so I drove up to um, uh, Nabisco, I drove to um, Unilever, to M&M Mars, and then you flew to Kellogg's and to um, uh, a couple other companies to kind of say, hey, look, there's a tremendous 
win-win opportunity here. You can actually, by using these mini packs, you can actually sell food to people. You can sell less food to people and make more money. And that's, that's kind of attractive. Hmm, let's see, lower costs, more revenue, great. And I, I was really disappointed, I think, at the time because it didn't get a really tremendous reception. It seemed almost kind of confusing. It seemed orthogonal to the way they were thinking at the time. And I, I, was, I was fairly disheartened at that experience. And about a year and a half later, I got a call um, from Nabisco. Uh, somebody at Nabisco said, hey, you know, do you really think that people would go for these, like, at that time it was called mini, mini packs, mini size packs. And I said, well, you know, it, it looks to us that there's <clears throat> at least half of the brand loyal people for one product um, would, would be willing to pay up to 20% more for something that helped them eat less. And then I never, never heard from them again. <laughs> and um, a few years later, they ended up being the company that first came out with 100-calorie uh, packs, which, which I have to admit is a lot smarter or a lot, a, a lot better of a description than called mini-size packs. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was, it was nice that you stimulated them to think about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there's other things like that, too, um, that are out there. I'm not sure that we know what they are, but I, but I think that, I think there's tremendous potential in that way. So thus far, we've, we've mainly talked about environmental cues that are making people eat too much of things. Uh, could one turn this on its ear and change environmental cues to get people to eat more of things that would benefit them? Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, one thing, we, we've, been, we've been turning our attention towards some, towards some school things. And um, one thing we we're doing is it's building off of some of the, the great research that, that you did here at Yale a while back where you gave people free, free fruit. And what we want to look at is, is what happens if, if you were to kind of change lunch lines around. And when we find that there's a, there's a nice nudge factor that ends up happening by how you order food in cafeterias, and that's just really, really a, a small thing. But, um, you know, if you end up seeing that it increases fruit consumption from uh, <clears throat> 26% to 37%, that was a pretty easy change to make, and it doesn't seem to be coming at any cost. And so that's one thing I, I'm trying to look, I'm trying to think of how there might be these new opportunities to get people to eat, eat, you know, make the better choice, but not feel constrained, feel that it's their own volition. Because if, if they, if, if we can get somebody to eat more, let's say, to choose a vegetable side dish for lunch instead of, you know, maybe french fries or something like that, there's something really empowering that I think it communicates to a person through their own self-perception. They're like, well, I got the broccoli. It, yeah, you know, it does taste pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I would be great for us to be able to reinforce. But it, it is such a, I think it's such a nascent field that we're really struggling with some of these ideas. And we're coming up with good ideas, but I think this snowball is just getting started. You know, it would be very interesting to do an experiment in a school or something where if you could get the school to agree to make wholesale changes in, you know, the size, the shape, size of the plates, the shape of the glasses, what the food is called, all these sort of things would be very interesting. So, you know, so something that, that you'd, you'd you might have on the menu, but you don't necessarily want to see kids eating more of, like pizza would be called pizza. 
but you, you have something <laughs> else that you, you know you'd like them to see be eating the green beans. You give them some fancy sounding name, put them on a certain kind of dish or something. You, you I mean, your studies would would suggest those things could make a big difference. I, I think they, they would really would, and something I've been really interested in doing. I've I've only visited with some some people a little bit about this. Is is essentially experimenting with what I call, what I call the lunchroom of the future, and the idea would be to take a whole bunch of these interventions that that your work suggested, that other work suggested, that behavioral economics suggests, and even if we don't have 100% proof that it's going to result in this big whopping effect, taking all these things and throwing them in a pot together and changing a school in a wholesale way. I think could could just have a miraculous result. You know, you think it would because individually each of the, each of these things matters a lot. You know, you you've mentioned a number of your studies and the study you mentioned that was done here on fruit uh, done by my colleague Marlene Schwartz mm-hmm, mm-hmm, had yeah. like you said had very powerful effects. It was just if you instead of asking kids whether they wanted a piece of fruit, you just said, "Would you rather have fruit or the fruit juice?" and then the expectation was they were going to take one. And they ate more of it. And so it would be interesting if, if you could find a school that would agree to do an experiment like this, to go in and change all these things at the same time and see what overall impact it would have on the kids. Yeah, I like it because I, I think it would, it would be a non-obvious impact. Now, the, the critics of such a thing, I could anticipate what they might say, is to say, well, fine, the kids will do better when they're in school, but then they'll be monsters when you let them loose. They're going to, <laughs> they're going to run right to the 7-Eleven and start you know, pouring down the soft drinks and eating the snack foods and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and they would compensate for, it, for, for these things by behaving um, even worse outside of the school. Do you think that would be true? Well, you know, we, we've started this compensation study right now, and, and, and it's, it's kind of, it's really neat. What we're looking at is we're looking at um, does the, the, the time of the day when you eat lunch, does it, does it bias how healthy or unhealthy you eat when it comes to the extras? One of the things we find is that people who eat later on in the day, the, the last lunch periods, tend to eat, in general, much less healthy than people who end up eating earlier in the day. But what's interesting, though, is what happens for the rest of the, for the, rest of the day if they go home. And that for women, even though they eat a little bit more if they're in the last lunch period than the first lunch period, it, they, it, they seem to compensate the rest of the day. They don't eat quite so much when they go home. The big difference is with the boys, that if a, if a boy is in the last lunch period versus the first lunch period, he'll eat more calories and a little less healthy, but he continues to eat what he normally would at home. So as a result, there's, there's where the addition is. It seems to be with males more than females. Now... I don't know if we'd find this gender influence in all the other dimensions like you're suggesting, but um, it's something that that would be worth looking at. Right. So what people believe they've eaten has a big impact on what they do later because of this it compensation. Seems to, it seems to. It seems to, yeah. yeah. I and mean, we've just found the same thing with a calorie labeling study, so it seems to be a pretty robust effect. Brian, one thing I, I really enjoy about your work is that you, you, you take it to the world. And by that, I mean, you know, you're not satisfied with just publishing things in the scientific journals. You do that, and the work is very high quality, but, but you're also terrific at what, working with the media, uh, letting people know about the outcomes of your studies, writing a book like Mindless Eating, mm-hmm. 
um, and things like that. And I think that's a way for the science to have a big impact because it gets out there in the world where it can really make a difference. And, you know, the driving around you did to the food companies and things like that may not have had the expected or the, the hoped-for result at the time, but you planted the seed. And, and, you know, times have changed now, and those initial ideas that you had so long ago are now finally coming true. So, I, I, as I said, I admire you for, for doing that and trying to work with the companies that can really make a difference. And one of the examples of uh, taking it out there into the world is something that you've, you're calling the small plate movement. <laughs> Tell us about what that is. Well, one thing that we found in study after study that, that if a person goes from using the 12 and a half inch plate, serving themselves pasta, or whatever the dinner is, on a 12 and a half inch plate, and they just drop it two inches down at say 10 and a half or 10 and a quarter inches, we find that person after person ends up serving themselves about 22% less in the smaller plate on average. And, um, but what's neat about that is that people don't realize they're full because, you know, three ounces of pasta on a 10 and a half inch plate, man, that looks like a, that, that's a plate full. That looks a good amount. 10 and a half inches on a 12 inch plate, I mean, that just looks like an appetizer so you could add some more. And we, we found that this has a really big impact. But what's weird is that if a plate size drops much below 10 inches, this effect boomerangs. If it drops much below 10 inches, what we find is that people will go back for seconds or thirds, and it sort of erases the effect. But this, there's this optimal area about, about 10 to 10 and a half inches. So one of the things we're doing is we're starting something called the small plate movement. And <clears throat> this is at smallplatemovement.org. And we're targeting consumers, restaurants, and plate manufacturers, dinnerware manufacturers. For consumers, what we're saying is, 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 look, for one month, take the small plate challenge. Just for one month, use a smaller plate, 10 and a half, 10 inches in diameter, and, and see what it does. Now, in some of our earlier pilot studies, we found the typical person who does this for just the first month or two ends up losing you know, about two pounds, but very passively. Just they lose two pounds by using a smaller plate. The third month, however, we see this big uptick because they start feeling a little more empowered. They, they try something in addition to it, and it has this kind of ripple effect, it appears. And so we're encouraging people to do this. They can go to the website, like smallplatemovement.org, and they can log on if they want to be a part of a community. They can just do it themselves with their family. But we're also going to target... Um, the, the restaurants, the National Restaurant Association. In fact, I've got some meetings set up with them where we're going to say, look, restaurants will benefit tremendously by using smaller plates. If you're an all-you-can-eat restaurant, you not only do people serve less, but they have less waste. If you're a fixed-plate restaurant, you know, your <clears throat> eight-ounce piece of salmon on a 10-inch plate, man, that looks like a tremendous value compared to when you have it in a 12-inch plate. You know, and You'll benefit that way, too. And, and your research would suggest that a c customer walking out of the restaurant with a smaller plate, even though they've eaten the same food they would have on a bigger plate, will feel more satisfied, will feel like they've had more, will feel like they're full, and, and, and have a better impression of the restaurant. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They'll, they'll see it as a better value. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and so it's t ends up being a tremendous win-win um, experience for restaurants and consumers. Because they can, they, they can lower their food costs. You don't have to have even a, on a 12-inch plate, you might need that 9-ounce nine, nine piece of salmon. On a 10-ounce plate, you might get away with a 7-ounce piece of salmon and still looking like it's huge, and people are still leaving being full and happy. 
is there, I mean, it seems, uh, the logic to it just seems so apparent. And, you know, consumers would eat less and, and the restaurants could make more money. Why wouldn't they just jump on this instantly? Maybe they will, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping they do. When, when we um, found this out about the, the glass shapes that, that, you know, bartenders pour less alcohol in tall skinny glasses and short wide glasses, I presented it to um, four of the big restaurant chains. And I know um, it seemed to take about a year before there started being a change. And I think one restaurant still didn't change. Because you get a big investment in, in dinnerware and glassware out there. But it, it took a, a, about, I think, about nine months before we started seeing changes. But um, eventually, it seems like three of them all did change. That's really great. So, so people can find out more about your work um, by reading your book, Mindless Eating. Uh, you mentioned the smallplatemovement.org website for that part of it. And you also have a Cornell website, I believe, that talk, that lists your work and various things. Would would there be would that be a good place for people to That'd visit That would be good, too. too. And you, they can get directly to that if they go to mindlesseating.org. Okay. That, that looks hooks right up to the Cornell website also, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's very inspiring work. And uh, like I said, I uh, we use it a lot in our own research, and so I'm grateful for that impact. So congratulations for accomplishing so much, and thank you for joining us. Well, I appreciate it because you've been a tremendous inspiration to me for many, many years, and I, I will be grateful for that forever. Well, thank you. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Wansink, professor at Cornell University and director there of the Cornell Food and Brand Lab, also serving at the moment at, as the executive director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. As I mentioned at the outset, uh, you can visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other podcasts that were recorded. A group of excellent people have visited us for these podcasts, so I urge you to check out the other possibilities. And then also on the website is a, a list of resources that the Rudd Center orders, including uh, has available, including a free email newsletter. Thank you very much.